through June 7th. Somebody said June 7th. I don't have that in my Bible. <laughs> Second Kings chapter 2, if you don't have a daily Bible. I want to explore with you this morning the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Now, there's lots and lots in these last, this last week's reading. I mean, you've got Elijah, you've got Elisha, you've got the, the uh, uh, interaction with the prophets of Baal, you've got Elijah getting all bummed out, and you've got all, you've got so much there that uh, as I prayed, I just began to sense the Lord wanting us to explore a, from a little different perspective this morning and use Elisha's ministry to look at. Now, Elisha's ministry is a prototype of Jesus' ministry. And as we go through, we're going to look at some of his miracles, you'll see the incredible parallels. But it's not just the parallels in his ministry, it's Elisha's very own personality and style parallels Jesus. And we'll point this out to you. Now the context, historically speaking, if you've been reading along with us, is that Israel is, is at the, at probably their, one of their lowest places spiritually and morally. The, the root of their problem can be traced back to Solomon. This is incredible if you think about it. We've, we've talked about Solomon, we've studied the, the Song of Songs, we've studied his Proverbs, uh, we've looked at uh, the uh, book of Ecclesiastes last week. And here's a man who God has endowed with incredibly awesome wisdom, the wisest man, the most knowledgeable man to ever have lived on the face of the earth. And yet, with all the knowledge and the wisdom that he was given, he was blessed with, he still leads Israel into idolatry and ultimately apostasy. They walk away from God. So the seeds of Israel's problems lie with Solomon. After he dies, his son Rehoboam takes the throne, and there begins the division of the kingdom into two, into two factions. There's the northern kingdom made up of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom made up of two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And these two tribes are going to really have their troubles. And you read about all the kings in, in the second, first and second kings who rule these various tribes, all the intrigue that goes on, the assassinations that go on, uh, and so forth. Well, Elijah and Elisha are going to minister to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes. They are ultimately going to be carried away in captivity. So will the, nor the southern tribes, by the way, later on. But the ten tribes up in the north get carried away first, and uh, they are literally overrun by the Assyrian people. Now, they're not the same as the Syrians today from Syria. The Assyrians, they were probably one of the most fierce peoples on the face of the earth in the ancient Near East, an incredibly powerful nation. And they swooped down upon the ten northern tribes, and they literally... Uh, shave the land clean and they carry off all the people into captivity. They resettle them as well as killing most of them. And so we have tremendous devastation headed for the ten northern tribes. But in order to avert the, the possibility of this devastation, God sends his prophets to the northern tribes, to Israel. 
First Elijah, then Elisha. Elijah's ministry foreshadows John the Baptist's ministry. And if you read in the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, he speaks of John the Baptist as, as Elijah. Now, John the Baptist, you know, wore uh, camel skin clothes, rough clothes. He lived out in the desert. He ate locusts. And, uh, I mean, this guy was just really, um, his ministry was very unique. <laughs> and he preached repentance. You know, he, 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 he was out on the banks of the Jordan, and he was just railing at the Jews, saying, you need to repent, you need to repent, and so forth. And so Elijah's ministry was much like John the Baptist. But Elijah's ministry gives way to Elisha's, John, and, and John the Baptist's ministry gives way to the ministry of Jesus. You'll see the great similarities in this uh, transition. But as we think about this, I, I want to point you to something I think is very, very significant. And this is just kind of, a, uh, I think, an important sidelight. When you read the Old Testament... You're reading history, you're reading uh, 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 prophecy, you're reading things that really are foretelling Jesus. Let me share with you just a couple of verses out of the New Testament, a couple of references. The Old Testament scriptures, they're known as the law and the prophets. That's a phrase that describes the Old Testament. Or Moses and the prophets. Those are terms that describe the Old Testament. They all speak of Jesus. They all describe Jesus in some way. And we'll look at this morning and see how Elisha and his whole ministry in person speak of Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, you'll remember that Jesus has risen from the dead after, after having been killed. And uh, his disciples are all gone. They're all spread there's two particular disciples that are going to their town uh, the, uh, called Emmaus, and they are very down and very discouraged. They don't know that Jesus has risen from the dead yet. All they know that he was crucified, he died, and they buried him. That was it. All their dreams are dashed. All their hopes are dashed. And they are very down. Can you imagine how they might be emotionally and personally and so forth? Okay. So they're walking along on the road to Emmaus, and they're just bummed. And all of a sudden, there's a third guy walking with them. And this third guy says, what's going on? What's happening? And they said, haven't you heard? And they begin to share with them how Jesus was killed and so forth. And, and then Jesus listens and begins, and they, can't, they don't recognize him right off. But then he begins to tell them and describe to them what was said of him in all the scriptures. He began to open up to them the whole Old Testament. That's all they had was the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And so Jesus begins to unfold to them the whole Old Testament. And they're just, they're, they're, they're just going, wow! And then as soon as it dawns on them who he is, he disappears. <coughs> Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, much the similar thing. Paul describes, he says, that Christ rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures is Paul referring to? The Old Testament. So the Old Testament speaks of Jesus, and it speaks of the thread, the theme of redemption. 
And when you read the Old Testament, in fact, I want to encourage you to do this. As you read through the Old Testament, try to note, how does this passage, how does this prophecy, how does this psalm, how does this refer and relate back to Jesus? How does this point me to Jesus? That's a, that's a fascinating study to do when you read the Old Testament. You try, to, you try to ferret out and pick out the theme of redemption in those passages. Now again, Elisha's ministry occurs at a time when the spiritual and moral life of Israel is at an all-time low. And it's got to be something akin to a resurrection from the dead to redeem them. Jesus' ministry is a ministry of death to life. Jesus' ministry is a ministry of death to life. Say that with me. Jesus' ministry is a ministry of death to life. Israel is in a place of spiritual death right now. They've apostatized. The land is full of idolatry. They've walked away from God. They're, they're experiencing all manner of immoral practices, heathen practices. They've walked away from God. They're spiritually and morally dead. And it's going to take something akin to a resurrection from the dead to bring them back to God. And again, that's going to be a theme of Elisha's ministry, and that was certainly the theme of Jesus' ministry. God doesn't want people to perish. God doesn't want people to perish. People say this. You've got you to understand what's going on. People say, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. God is not sending people to hell. He's trying to save them from hell. He's trying to say, well, who sent them to hell? They're already going there. People are born separated from God. They are born already on the road to destruction. You see this in little kids. Little kids, they're, they, as, they, as they're born, they begin to grow up. They don't grow up just happy, wonderful, compliant, pleasing, obedient children, do they? No, they grow up, and it's not very long before they're yelling no, they're digging their heels in, they're fighting you. That's just a sign of the sin nature that separates. And as much as you want to love those little kids, you want to smack them. <laughs> and as a parent, you already you feel the separation. You feel the distance in relationship, right? I mean, I've talked to moms who said, I want to kill them. <laughs> now, they don't mean that really, but I mean, it's just the sentiment. They're so overwhelmed with the rebellion, and you can't understand where the rebellion is coming from. That's the sin nature that has separated us from God. And it's just working its way out in, in human life and human relationships. So God isn't sending people to hell. He's trying to holler to us. He's trying to get us to pay attention to him so he can save us from hell, save us from destruction. Am I making sense to you? So when you talk with people and they say, well, you know, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. You say, God isn't sending people to hell. God's trying to save them from hell. They're going there all by themselves. Their own choice. And he's just trying to get them to turn around. Well, God doesn't want people to perish. And even to the last, he seeks to turn uh, people to him. Even to the last. If you read the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, you see that God is, I mean, he sends angels to fly through the heavens declaring the gospel to get people's attention. And there's incredible devastation coming upon the earth. Wrath. Again, to get people to turn around. 
Now, God, through Elijah and through Elisha, is meeting a very, very critical situation in the life of the nation of Israel. And he's meeting that critical situation with miraculous means. I mean, startling, miraculous signs to get the people's attention and to turn them around. Now, miracles are not miracles just in and of themselves. When you read about the miracles, and we're going to look at a number of them this morning quickly, there's three purposes for these miracles. You've got to understand these purposes. The first reason for the, mir the miracle uh, is obviously to meet a, a particular need in a situation. Secondly, the miracle is designed to be a sign to all those people around that something extraordinary, something superhuman has just happened. And this is from God, the one and only God. The prophet says, the Lord has done this. This is from the Lord. And the people would hopefully turn back to him and say, oh, hallelujah. And then the third reason is that the, the uh, miracles are prophetic. Especially in Elisha's ministry, the miracles are going to be prophetic and they're going to point towards Jesus and all the miracles that he's going to do. And again, his miracles don't, don't only just meet a need, although they do that, they're also a, a sign that the kingdom of God has come. They're a sign that God's power is available. So it's important to understand the reason for those miracles. The main emphasis, again, of Elisha's ministry is that of resurrection and the hope of new life if only the people would respond. Isn't that always the issue? If only the people would respond. Jesus worked many, many miracles, didn't he? And the people ended up seeking him out just for the miracles. And they couldn't see beyond the miracles. And he said to them, it is a, 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 a perverse and adulterous generation that seeks after just the sign, just the wonder, just the miraculous. The point is there's more to it. The sign is designed not just to meet the need, but to point to the greater reality, God, and to draw us to him. And so this is going to be a, a key feature of Elisha's ministry. Jesus, in his ministry recorded in the New Testament, just didn't come to do miracles. He didn't just come to, to uh, heal the leper and restore sight to the blind and so forth. He came to turn people from sin and idolatry to faith in him. He came to turn people from sin and idolatry to faith in him. Elisha's ministry is to turn people from sin and idolatry and faith in the living God. To bring them from death to life. From death to life. Isn't it amazing when we have an offer of incredible life, free, free, how we still resist? Isn't that a source of amazement? That is a constant source of amazement. Whenever we preach the gospel, whenever we tell people the great news of Jesus Christ, that he wants to save us, he wants to save you and bring you from death to life, how people still resist. It's amazing to me. But we know that there are other forces and other dynamics going on. There's the sin nature, there's the devil working on people. He's got people just so bound up that down deep inside they want to hope, they want to believe that this is true but it takes great courage and willingness 
and faith to break those bonds and to be set free. But Jesus wants to set people free. And his miracles testified of his authority, his power, and the truth of his word to demonstrate everything he said. He said, believe in me that you might have life. Believe in me that you have, might, might have life. And he still speaks and he still acts today. Is Jesus still acting today? Is he still working out his ministry today? Yes. How is he doing it? Through us, through the church. Are you guys with me? Everybody awake this morning? Jesus is acting through the church, through you and I. This is, this is just kind of like halftime. Sunday morning is like halftime. This is when you come and, and you get regenerated so you can go back out into the world so that you can what? Effectively work out the ministry that God has gall, called you to and given you and trusted to your care. Jesus is working out his ministry in us. He says, in fact, in John chapter 14, an astounding thing. He announces to the disciples that he's going away. But he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will, will be in all of the disciples. And then he says this thing. This, this blows, his, blows their mind. He says, the things that I do, you will do greater things. You will do greater things, he says. Greater, what do you mean? Well, what did Jesus do? I mean, he did awesome things, didn't he? He says, you're going to do greater things. Greater in terms of number. Because now the power of God is not just limited to one particular body, one particular location in Palestine, as it was 1,900 years ago. The power of God by his spirit, Jesus by his spirit, lives in every one of us. He is very real in our life. Paul says, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And this life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith and the power of God. And so Jesus lives his life through us. We have surrendered to him. We have given our life to him. We've yielded ourselves as vessels to him. He says, all right, now I want to come into you and I want to begin to work my life out through you. There's a divine human partnership going on. And this partnership is designed to what? Share the good news. To minister his grace to people who are going to hell so that they can be saved. So that they wouldn't perish eternally. So we're going to do greater things, greater in terms of number and effect. And of course, the greatest thing you can do is not just heal someone who's blind. The greatest thing that you can do is participate with God in the salvation of a soul. I still don't think we have a grasp of the reality of this thing. Saved. Saved. If we understood it, we could never, ever stop saying, oh, God, thank you. Every waking moment, we'd say thank you if we understood what hell was really all about. And what the agony of Christ on the cross was all about. Incredible. Now, he, in 2 Kings chapter 2, the first 11 verses, Elijah passes off the scene. Elijah is going to be taken up to heaven. Now, he doesn't die. He doesn't experience a physical death. This is pretty astounding. If, how many read the passage, 2 Kings chapter 2? How many of you read that? Okay. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe what you read? Do you really? 
Do you believe that a fiery chariot came out of the sky and Elijah got into it without getting burned up and it took off and took him up to heaven? Do you believe that? Would you say that out in public? You know what people would think of you if you said that in public? They'd say, you are, you poor thing. You really believe that? They'd say, don't you know that that's just mythology? That's just a, a fairy tale? That's just, that's not, it didn't really happen. It's just a story. It's just an allegory to illustrate some other truth. You really believe it, huh? Well, okay. I believe it too. Just before Elijah takes off, Elisha now has been his disciple, his student, and he has followed Elijah around because, because the Lord had gone to uh, Elijah and said, go anoint him. He's going to follow after you in terms of ministry. And so Elijah tries to shake him off to see how committed he really will be. He says, I'm going over here, you wait here. And Elijah says, uh-uh, I'm going with you. I ain't leaving your side. See, that's a true disciple. I'm, I'm staying right with you. Where you go, I go. That's a mark of a true disciple. Wants to be there, wants to learn, wants to observe, wants to get all the input they possibly can. Well, he does this, and then in the midst of, 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 of this ministry, Elisha tells Elijah, I want a double portion of whatever you got. I mean, he knows Elijah's got a powerful ministry. He says, but I want a double portion. And God's going to give it to him. And you see that reflected in the, all the miracles. There are over 20 miracles recorded that Elisha does. And I'm sure he did many, many, many more that aren't recorded. Much like John says of Jesus, all the things that Jesus said and did, not all the books in the world could record them. So we just have representative examples. I think that Elisha's miracles are representative examples. But as the, as the chariot comes down and takes Elijah off, Elijah flings his, his, his garment, his cloak, his mantle down, and it falls on the ground, and Elisha goes over and picks it up. And he walks over to the Jordan River. He had just seen Elijah part the Jordan River by slapping it with his coat. And Elisha, he doesn't go over there and say, well, I wonder if I can do that. He said, surely I can do this. And he fell, whap, in the Jordan River, and it parted. And his ministry begins. His ministry begins. Where did Jesus' ministry begin? At the Jordan River. With his baptism. Can you see how the parting of the Jordan and the walking down is a picture of baptism? Didn't Israel walk through water that was parted? And it pictures baptism. Paul talks about that. Going down into, being immersed into. And so Elisha's ministry starts. And as we look at his, some of his miracles, I want you to remember these, this theme, death from life. I'm sorry, life from death. Life from death. Life from death. And this is the very theme that is going to mark Jesus' ministry, and this is the hope that you and I have. I'm here to tell you that Jesus still is in the miracle-working business today. But he's not working miracles just for the sake of working a miracle. It's not an end in itself. 
It is to meet a need, but it's to be a sign also to those who are around. This is why when, you, when you've got non-Christian friends and family, you've got people who have great needs, you can go and you can say, let me pray right now. And God's going to do something. Because he wants the unsaved to know his power. And they don't have to qualify. They don't have to have it all together. Sometimes we make prayer just a proprietary thing just within the church. Well, we just pray for each other. Well, that we need to do that. But the far greater miracles are going to occur out there in the world when the church begins to go out and reach out into the world and pray for the unsaved. And pray God's power be evidenced in the unsaved. This is what Jesus did. This is what Paul did. This is what Elisha did. And you see incredible things begin to happen. I hope this excites you. I hope you get turned on about praying for those people who are not saved. Now, I know how difficult it is the first couple of times. When there's a need, you go, well, um, well I'll ask my church to pray. No, you just say, Steve, I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm going to pray that God's power comes present in your life. And they're going to start, oh, well, you know, I got this religious fanatic on my tail here. <laughs> Don't let him get away. Let him, he's going to squirm. But you pray for him. You pray for him. And you can look him right in the eye and say, God's going to do something here. God's going to do something here. And you can say that with confidence. I promise you. I promise you. That is what? What do we call that? Faith. Faith. Very good. <laughs> you can assume that God's going to do something. The Bible says God doesn't want any to perish. We have ample testimony of how God reaches out, reaches out, reaches out to save the unlost. Are you with me? All right, let's look at some of these miracles. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Remember the theme, death to life, death to life. Elisha did it. It's a picture of Jesus' ministry, and it's a picture of Jesus' continuing ministry through his church. Death to life, death to life. In this first one, we see the healing of the, the death waters of Jericho. Now, Elisha has crossed over the Jordan. He's gone into Jericho. The people from the city come to him. They recognize that he's a man of God, and they complain about the waters of the city. The waters of the city are poisoned. There's something wrong with them. The, 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 the land around the city won't grow any crops. The, it, the irrigation is lousy. People can't drink the water. It'll poison them. And so in the midst of this passage, we're told that Elisha commands that a new bowl be brought to him and to put salt in that new bowl. So they bought it. They brought it to him. Elisha goes over to the spring where the water was and he threw the salt into the spring. And then he said, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the, and the water remained wholesome to this day according to the word Elijah had spoken. Now here's this. You're a, a citizen of the city of Jericho. You're, you're part of this whole thing. You're, you're part of the delegation that comes to Elisha and says our water is bad. It causes death. The land is unproductive. We can't use it to irrigate. We desperately need fresh, clean water. Does that sound familiar? 
And so uh, Elisha says to you, okay, well, now bring me a new bowl and put some salt in it. Salt? What in the world does he want salt for? He takes the bowl with the salt and he goes over to the spring and he throws the salt in the spring. And you're watching this. He says, water's healed. Who's going to be the first one to drink it? <laughs> Who's going to be the first one to drink it? Are you with me? Faith! Faith! And the water was healed. Waters that produced death now produced life. Waters that produced death now produced life. This was a miracle to meet the need of the city, but it was also a testimony. Turn back to God. This is what the Lord has done for you. He wants to give you life. Trust in him. Enter into a new relationship with him, a renewed relationship. Jesus brings new life to that which was once ruled by death. Jesus brings life to that which was once ruled by death. Look at the second miracle. This is in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 10 through 27. If you have the Daily Bible, it's on page 725. Again, it has to do with water. This time, the Israelite army has joined with the army from Judah and the army from Edom. Three armies are going to attack the Moabites. Now, the Moabites have rebelled from the northern kingdom. You read that in that particular passage. And so they're going to go and they're going to bring Moab back into the fold, bring them back under submission. And so they amass this great army. They're going to take a shortcut. They're going through a desert. They're going to surprise Moab. However, they get into the desert, and guess what? They discover no water. You ever been really thirsty? Now, most of us have never experienced thirst to the point where uh, we would die from dehydration. But there's, here's a whole army that's about ready to perish out in the desert. And they cry out, is there a prophet here? Elisha is brought, and his comments are very interesting. He says to them, he says, if it weren't for Je uh, Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even give you guys the time of the day. I mean, he was really ticked off at them. But anyway, he comes, and he prays, and there's water. There's water that sustains the army. This is incredibly significant because Jesus is the source of what? Living water, isn't he? And his living water sustains people, sustains his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail. If you're thirsty spiritually, if you're thirsty personally, if life is empty, if you have no real meaning and purpose and direction, if you're just kind of going through the motions, if it's one day just after another after another, you're thirsty. Come to Jesus for his living waters. If you're out in the desert, so to speak, come to Jesus for living water. This third miracle is on page 723, 2 Kings chapter 4. 
verses 18 through 37. This is the raising of the Shunammite woman's son from death to new life. Again, we see this theme, from death to life. Now, it's very interesting. Elisha had prayed for this woman earlier, and she had given birth to a son. She was barren. She didn't have any children. Her husband was old. She had no prospect of a child. Uh, and so he prays for her the following year. She gives birth to a son, and the son grows up. Now he's grown up, and all of a sudden he dies. The woman goes to seek out Elisha. Now she doesn't make an overt request that he come. She just clings to him in her grief. Elisha figures out what's happening. He tells to his servant, take my staff and go to the boy to where he lays and lay the staff on his body. Presumably you would think that Elisha's staff would carry enough wherewithal to raise the boy from the dead. So the servant goes and does that, lays the staff on the boy's body. The boy doesn't raise from the dead. The servant comes back. He says, it didn't work. It didn't work. So Elisha comes now. Elisha comes, and he does a very strange thing. What does he do? What does he, do? he lays on the body. Lays on, can, you, can you picture yourself doing this? In a hospital room, someone's just died. Child. At the funeral. Now, I mean, I know a lot of us have had a thought. You know, you've attended a funeral, and you thought, you know, I just, just, I just pray. You, you, you feel this impulse to pray. Possibly, maybe that person would sit up in the casket. Have you ever done that? I mean, every funeral I do, I look at the body in the casket, you know, and I kind of say this quiet prayer. Rise in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I don't want anybody else to hear it, you know. I don't want anybody else to think I'm a cuckoo. Intimidated, right? I mean, imagine you pray the prayer. What would it be like if you went and you laid your hand on the person and you spoke? Would people think you were nuts? What if you got in the casket? <laughs> what if you climbed up on the casket and climbed down in there and got face to face with that body? As Elisha does. And they say, what in the world ever possessed Elisha to do that? Well, Elijah did it. Remember, Elijah did it earlier. He climbed on a, the body of a young boy, and the boy rose from the dead. So Elisha figured, well, if my, if my boss did it, I could do it. And so he does this incredible thing. He gets on the body. He starts getting warm. He climbs off. He walks around a little bit. He gets back on the body. And the boy sneezes seven times. He's awake. He's back. But here's a boy who comes from what? Death to life under Elisha's ministry. Did Jesus ever raise anybody from the dead? Absolutely. We have the classic passage of who? Lazarus. Someone remarked to me, you know, when Jesus was standing before Lazarus' tomb, he said, Lazarus, come forth! Remember that? Can you imagine being there, standing there, watching this thing? How electric that moment would be? Someone remarked to me that if Jesus hadn't said, Lazarus, come forth, he'd have just said, come forth, everybody who was dead would have come forth. <laughs> he had to specify. <laughs> That's power. <laughs> That's power. 
Only Jesus saves from death. Only Jesus saves from death. Muhammad doesn't. Buddha doesn't. Krishna doesn't. L. Ron Hubbard doesn't. Werner Erhard doesn't. Any number of the modern gurus, Maharishi, Mashi, Mushi doesn't. I mean, see, we laugh, we think it's funny, but you see, it's so tragic because there's so many people who are putting everything they've got, all their income, all their hopes, their entire life, their eternal destiny in the hands of these false prophets, these false evangelists. What's the point? Only Jesus brings people from death to life. Only Jesus the J word. It's easy to be out there and talk about God. Well, God said. Or to even go one step further and, and speak of the Lord, right? But it's a whole other thing to talk about Jesus in public. There's this inhibition that far too many people feel in the church of speaking about Jesus, using his name publicly in a reverent manner that brings power to bear on situations. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And we can be bold. We have God's Spirit living in us. This is what the Bible tells us. We have all the power of the living God by His Spirit in us waiting to be unleashed by faith. By faith. We have a message to proclaim. That message comes in word and deed to a perverse generation, just like Elisha ministered to a perverse generation, Jesus ministering to a perverse generation. We live in the midst of a perverse generation that we can proclaim the great news in word and deed. Is that exciting to you? I mean, it's awesome. Think about it. But you need to know that there's great opposition against that. You've experienced the opposition. The whole demonic realm is arrayed against us. But Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. We're going to bash those gates down with power, God's power. Only Jesus saves from death. There's a fourth miracle, and this is in chapter 4, verses 38 through 42, page 722. This is the purifying of the poisoned stew. Poisoned stew. You'd think they'd just throw it out and start over again. So we do, right? We just throw it out? I'll make a new batch. Rather than laying hands on that burnt roast. God, heal this roast! Right? They make this stew, it's poisonous, no one wants to eat it. Elisha comes and he heals the stew. The stew gives death, but now it brings life. Do you see that? Stew. A pot of stew, vegetable stew. Life from death. 
question we want to ask ourselves is, what is in the stew of our life that is poisonous to ourselves or poisonous to others around us? Think about that. What's in the stew of your life? What's in the stew of the life of the people around you that's poison, that Jesus can heal? Ask Jesus this morning as we receive communion. Jesus, there's something about me that I just don't like. It's wrong. I've got this habit. I've got this problem. I've got this polluting thing in me, and I want to be free from it. Come to the communion table by faith this morning and, and ask. Just like the people asked. Just like Elisha said, oh, sure, okay, we'll heal that. Ask. And then receive. People are so ready to react almost instantaneously to physical threat, aren't we? I mean, there's this fight or flight syndrome that rises up in us. We see this. They're threatened by the stew. They don't want to die, so they react instantaneously. But we don't react the same way to spiritual threat. We take in all kinds of poisoned spiritual stew. It poisons our soul. Rather than saying, Lord, Lord, heal this. Heal this. We're to be the salt and the light in in this society that God uses to heal. The fifth miracle is in chapter 4 again, verses 42 through 44. This is the multiplication of the barley loaves. Again, it's another picture of a miracle that Jesus is going to do. Jesus multiplies barley loaves to feed 5,000 men and then women and then all the children, some probably 10, 12,000 people. After which Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life. I'm the bread of life, he says. If you read in John chapter 6 where you have that miracle recorded and Jesus' own words about being the bread of life, he says, if anyone comes to me, he will, I will not let him go hungry. I'll sustain him. I'm the staff of life, he says. And then he's walking along, and he's got this whole mob of people following after him. And he's, he suddenly turns to him, and he says, why are you following me? Why are you following me? Because I fed you bread? Just because I met your appetite? Satiated your appetite? And then he really challenges them. He calls them to focus not so much on the the earthly bread that they ate, but on him, and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You'll not have life. Now that that was an incredible thing to say to a Jew, because it was it was absolutely vile. The Mosaic law prescribed against eating flesh, human flesh, and drinking blood. And so here's Jesus saying, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, was he speaking literally in that sense? No, he was speaking figuratively. He's saying, you've got to take me into your life. Not just this bread. I'm the bread of life. And John records that after he'd made that remark, the crowd was stunned And John says that many of his disciples left him. They couldn't handle it. It's too much. 
They didn't have eyes to see. They didn't understand the point he was making because they were so focused on the present, so focused on their own desires. Why do we follow Jesus? Do you ever think about that? Ask yourself this question. Meditate on this question this week. Why do I follow Jesus? Just to get my needs met? Or do I follow him because he's the living God? Do I follow him because there is no other? Do I follow him because he has words of life and truth? You remember what Peter said when everybody left? Jesus turns and says, are you going to? Peter says, where can we go? You have words of life. Why do we follow Jesus? The sixth miracle is the healing of Naaman. This is in chapter 5, page 730. Naaman is a, a commander, a military commander of a foreign army. He contracts a disease, a skin disease, leprosy it's known as. Not all diseases that were called leprosy were in fact the leprosy that we understand. There are a variety of skin diseases that fell under that one classification. But anyway, his army had captured a young Israelite girl. She went to work in his household, was a slave to his wife. She recognized that he had a skin disease. She says if he would just go down and consult the prophet in Israel, meaning Elisha, that he could be healed. Well, Naaman goes down and he consults the king of Israel. The king can't do anything for him. Elisha hears about it, sends word to the king, says, send him on down here to me. So Naaman arrives at Elisha's house with this great entourage, his chariots, his horses, huge entourage, pulls up in front of Elisha's house, fully expecting Elisha to come out of the house and minister to him personally. Elisha sends his servant out. He says, go tell the man to go down into the Jordan, wash seven times, and his, he'll be new like a boy. Naaman really is insulted. He turns away in anger, saying, I expected that, that he, the prophet, should come out and wave his hand over me and call on his God. And, you know, this big ceremonial to do. Make a big deal out of this. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Just obey. Just go do what I say. Just go take this little step. Or he's all ticked off, he's going to leave. Can you imagine? There, there have been times when people have come to me and they say, would you pray for me, Pastor? I mean, up here in front after a service. And it's not that I don't want to pray for people, but it's just that I've got a million people who are lined up and want to talk, want to ask questions and so forth. And, and they've got to have me pray for them. Again, I don't mind praying for people. I enjoy praying for people. But I know when certain people are coming because... The pastor must pray. You know what I'm talking about? Because I have the hot hands. <laughs> I do not have hot hands. But they need some special attention from me. And because I say, well, no, go to the prayer room, because the elders are in the prayer room, they'll anoint you with oil and they'll pray over you. And they'll have time to talk with you and minister to you. I just don't have the time up here right now. Can you imagine some people actually get mad and walk away in a huff. Actually happens. Sad. 
So if you come and ask me to pray and I direct you to the prayer room, please don't be mad. Understand it's not something personal, but I know that you'll be much more effectively ministered to back in that prayer room. You'd be anointed with oil. I don't have anointing oil up here. But Naaman goes off in a huff, expecting that Elisha should do it. Anyway, he's talking into going back, and he finally surrenders to the process. He goes down, he dips himself in the Jordan seven times, he comes up, and he's all healed. Leprosy, now this is significant, leprosy in Israel was a sign, was a symbol of sin. Sin separates. If you were a leper in Israel, if you had any kind of observable skin disease, then you could not enjoy fellowship with the people, you could not offer sacrifice, you could not benefit by all that was going on in the community, you had to live outside, and if you were walking down a street and other people were coming towards you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So this whole picture, you are separated now. In God's economy of things, as a picture, leprosy was a symbol of sin, which separates, which produces death. Separation is death. And so the healing of Naaman here, here's, a, here's not even an Israelite. Here's someone who's outside of the kingdom of God, an Israelite that gets healed by the grace of God through the ministry of Elisha, a picture of the Gentiles that will be brought into the kingdom. He's brought from death to life. Death to life. There's two more. I want to point these out. In chapter 6, verse seven, uh, page 723, this is an astounding one. An axe head lost in a pond of water is made to float. There's a, a group of guys that are out chopping some wood. They're going to build a structure. And one guy is chopping down some wood, he's, and, and all of a sudden his axe head flies off the handle and out into this pond of water. And he says, oh, no, it was borrowed. It was borrowed. Bummer. Have <laughs> you ever borrowed something and broken it? Oh, man, I've got to replace this thing. I've got to buy him a brand new one. And it wasn't that hot in the fir- to begin with, right? <laughs> In the first place. So you understand the dilemma this guy has on his hands? So he's over there, he's at the side of the water, he's just moaning and groaning. Elijah comes over and says, what's the matter? He says, well, I was chopping the wood, and my axe head flew out into the water. Elijah says, so? He says, it was borrowed. Oh, I understand, it was borrowed, okay. He said, where did it fly? Where did it land? And he points, he says, right over there. Now, this is amazing to me, I don't understand what this is. He says, give me a stick. So they give Elisha a stick, and Elisha throws a stick right where the thing fell in the water, and guess what comes up? The axe head floats to the surface. <laughs> Here's an axe head floating on water. An axe head. Does this, does this remind you of something else floating on water? Not a boat. Jesus and Peter. Here again... The downward pull of death, the downward pull of death is overcome by the life-giving power of God. Do you see that axe head floating? It's down there, it's lost. 
but God's power causes it to float. Peter's walking on the water. As soon as he sees what he's doing, it dawns on him, ah, he panics. He begins to, what? Sink. And he cries out and says, what? Jesus, save me. Desperate, huh? See, it's only when you know you're sinking. It's only when you know you're going down. It's only when you know that that you can cry out to Jesus and say, save me, and know his saving power that will overcome the downward pull of death, the downward pull of depression. When you feel these things coming over your life, depression, fear, I'm being overwhelmed, I'm sinking, Jesus, save me! And you can share that with other people too. There's a whole lot of depressed people in this world. If they would only listen. If they would only listen and take advantage of God's saving power. The last one is in chapter 13. It's actually in next week's readings, but I wanted to get this one. This is a great one. Page 753 in your daily Bible. Elisha's ministry has come to an end. So we think. He's dead. He's dead and he's buried. Now you would think if a guy is dead and buried, the ministry is to pass on to somebody else, right? His ministry ends? His ministry does not end. Because even though he's dead and is buried, another Israelite who has died, his body is inadvertently thrown in with Elisha's bones. His body comes in contact with Elisha's bones. And guess what? He comes to life. Death to life. Death to life. That theme is associated over and over and over and over with Elisha's ministry. And again, it pictures, it foretells, it prophesies of Jesus' ministry that even though Jesus died, he died that we who are dead might rise to what? New life. Do you see the picture? Isn't that exciting? Now, Jesus' ministry is not only prophesied through Elijah's ministry, but Jesus' ongoing, continuing ministry is prophesied to the church. That these, there's no reason why these same kinds of things can't be occurring in our life today. Jesus says, you will do these, and greater things will you do. We need to be willing to step out. And when you have people in your life who are not Christians and they have a need, go to them. Say, let me pray right now for this need. Let me pray right now for this need. Let me ask the power, of, let me bring the power of God to bear on your need. You think that would be a testimony? Absolutely. But you've got to do it by what? Faith. You've got to be willing to step out by faith. And I'll tell you, the more you do it, you see God's power come to bear there ain't nobody going to shut you up. Nobody going to be able to keep your mouth closed. Believe me. Trust me. As Christ through his death gives life to those who come in contact with him. Come in contact with him. Just like this dead body came in contact with Elisha's bones. Come to new life. Pray with me.
Lord, I pray that we would catch a vision this morning of the ministries that you call us to. Lord, you've gifted us all in very unique ways. Not all of us have the gift of miracles or the gift of healing. But Lord, all of us can still pray for those around us who are unsaved. And pray that your power would come to bear in their life. And they would know your great healing, restoring, saving grace and give their life to you. Father, let, not let us, don't let us be overbalanced just focusing on miracles for the sake of miracles because that can happen. You know that. Help us to keep all these things in proper perspective. I pray, God, that as we begin to speak of these things, as we begin to minister to people, as we see envisioned in, in Elisha's ministry, not only Jesus, but his ongoing ministry through us, his church, Lord, that we'd be on fire like never before. And there would be great revival in our lives and the lives of all those around us. Father, we commend ourselves to you this morning. We pray your great blessing, strengthening as we come to your table now was telling us when I was being raised I was raised as a Jew and every year we would celebrate the Passover and at that time it had meaning to me I, I saw that there needed to be a sacrificial lamb who had to be slain so that the Jews could be saved the horror of losing their firstborn also when there was sin in one's life, there had to be a blood sacrifice. There had to be a death so that the sinner could have life. And I could comprehend that as a Jew. But boy, I realized that I probably needed a whole stable full to keep killing these animals because I was a, quite a sinner. Then Jesus came into my life as he has in, in yours. And all of a sudden, there was, there was a change. There's a way to have life every day. And just as the Word says, out of the book of Luke I'm reading, then came the first day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Of course, Jesus had a plan at this meal. No longer was there going to be animal sacrifice so that there could be death that would lead to life, but that he was going to be a sacrificial lamb forever and ever and ever. And that those who ate of his body and drank the juice representing his blood could forever have life out of his death. So Jesus said to his band of men, he said, after he had taken some bread and given thanks to his father, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you to do this in remembrance of me. I am now the Lamb. Let us take this bread and remember Him.
And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And I remember this most specially. Every time I do this, I think back to our Passover services. As I, as I was getting older and older, I, I kept on saying how wonderful that I could have life now. Because I was the firstborn son, and I said, how wonderful that there was life now because we sacrificed the lamb. And now every time I take communion, I think back to those days and say, thank you, Lamb of God. And every day we should wake up and say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. So let us take the cup. Let us thank him for his blood. Out of death comes his life.